0: Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Wednesday, it's January 13th, and this is the first episode of our winter 2016 season. I'm here coming to you as always from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm here with our trusty Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. Hey Brett, say hello to the folks. Oh man, I tried to be trusty, but gosh, <laughs> I know. There's a lot of knobs here to turn. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be back. And tonight, I want to focus on a topic that I think integral theory really has a lot to talk about and which has been very much in the news, uh, and particularly in our presidential elections here in the United States, and that's the topic of political correctness. Now that we've all returned heroically from another war on Christmas, (laughs) did you have a good war on Christmas, Brett? (laughs) 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 But we can lick our wounds and look at some of the other things that are arising here, such as speech codes on campus, Gay Wedding Cakes, Black Lives Matter, microaggressions, and just the increasing emphasis that we see culturally in general uh, regarding sensitivity and sex and race and gender and all of it. Before we get into all of that, I want to acknowledge and thank you who have uh, bumped Our podcast today, we're usually on Tuesday nights, and this week it's Wednesday because we wanted to make space for listening to Obama's last State of the Union address last night. You know, I'm a big Obama fan, and I love the speech, as I generally do with Obama. And I have to say, this morning I got an email from one of you, one of our listeners, who I think may even love it more than me. (laughs) And I'll, I'll read from this email. It's, it's short. It's from uh, our listener, Dexter. He writes I experienced this State of the Union as an amazing and uplifting historic event. I think it's probably the most evolutionarily advanced political speech ever given on this planet. It shows how far ahead, more integrally developed President Obama is as a person and as the leader of the United States, a nation that is leading in planetary progress. I have a deep resonance of heartfelt appreciation for the intellectual clarity and spiritual optimism which this president exudes. His speech is a supremely integrated manifestation of unarmed truth and unconditional love. And he signs it, peace and love, Dexter. And I love that peace and love. It reminds me of Ringo. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think Dexter's right, basically. Um, I do think that uh, Obama has uh, a lot of qualities of integral consciousness. Uh, I've made that case before and will, again, especially in this last year of his presidency, uh, where I am trying to remember to savor it because I don't know if we'll see the likes of him again in that position. Who knows? In my lifetime, who knows? But at any rate, uh, this was, of all of his speeches, in some ways his most integral manifesto. And I I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to point out that uh, he articulated specifically and made a point of articulating a bigger picture of you than what is normally done in the State of the Union. In fact, at the beginning of the speech, he said, quote, I don't want to just talk about next year. I want to focus on the next five years, the next 10 years, and beyond. And he talked about change as being a force with a kind of capital C which is feels integral to me, you know, that procreant urge of the world, as Walt Whitman said. And he talked about change as, quote, reshaping the way we live, the way we work, our planet, our place in the world, unquote. I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but using planet and place in the world— Those kinds of terminology, you heard it in Dexter's email, uh, planetary. These words have a special resonance for people who are postmodern. And by postmodern, I include integral, because integral includes green or postmodernity. And that planetary kind of reference point represents a world-centric view. And, you know, everybody can talk about the world in terms of travel and trade and globalization, et cetera. But that word planet implies that feeling of one thing, that one thing that we all have in common. And this is a progressive view. And of course, it's a view that drives the nationalists crazy. And you know, we contrast this kind of a view that's change positive with Donald Trump's slogan, which is make America great again. And that's sort of a more of a Republican view, which is to restore us to our past glory. But that, that's not what Obama's doing. And then I would also note that the rhetorical structure of the State of the Union speech was set up as a series of polarities. And, you know, from an integral perspective, we see that polarities is, you know, it's, it's how the cosmos evolves. It shows how thesis and antithesis, one thing and its opposite, generates a new synthesis or a new integration. Again, to quote Whitman, out of the dimness, opposite equals advance. And so Obama's whole speech was built around this. He talked about it's change that promises amazing medical breakthroughs but also economic disruptions, disruptions that strain working families. Change promises education for girls in the most remote villages, but also connects terrorists plotting an ocean away. It's change that can broaden opportunity or widen inequality. And he formulated the big polarities in the form of questions, two of which he really emphasized, and that is, first, how do we give everyone a fair shot at opportunity and also security in this new economy? And that is just integrally phrased, if you ask me. And then also, second, he says, how do we keep America safe? and lead the world without becoming its policeman. And he specifically and explicitly fought back against the, you know, fear meme that really affects so much of the media. And of course, the Republicans, because they want to create a sense of, you know, as they say, the world is on fire. When actually, and Obama makes this case, the American economy is the strongest and most resilient in the world, at least, you know, in this era, and that we're safe, that there's nothing that really creates an existential danger to America, as we had in the 70s with, you know, Soviet Union with a nuclear arsenal aimed at us, and, you know, so forth through history, World War II and so forth. So, I don't know if Obama has ever heard of integral theory, but I do think he thinks integrally. We do know, actually, just a little bit uh, beside the point, but Bill and Hillary Clinton and Al Gore have all quoted Ken Wilber publicly. But integral consciousness doesn't have to be self-aware as being integral. You know, that's for sure. It's just the natural stage of development that arises out of green consciousness. It has certain characteristics. It's change positive. It sees the potency of polarities. It doesn't think that the conflict and and, and tension between polarities is a bad thing, but a good thing. And it is also able to take the perspective of others. And those are three markers that I see over and over in this extraordinary man who is our president, and I'm grateful for as long as it uh, as long as it goes on. All right. I do want to get to this next story, which, as I said, it sort of figures into this. It's just part of the fabric of the culture. And that is, you know, this culture war and the skirmishes arising out of political correctness and speech code and microaggressions and all of that sort of thing. It's something that we see is really hit a chord. In the presidential elections, As I may have mentioned Donald Trump, is famous for offending, and his excuse is I don't have time for political correctness, and he's gotten a you know whole lot more support than I or a lot of other people ever thought he would, and I saw a study out of the Fairleigh Dickinson University and also the Rasmussen Poll that showed that 72 percent of people think that political correctness is a big problem. And that includes 61% of non-whites, African-Americans and Hispanics. 61% of African-Americans and Hispanics describe political correctness as a big problem. And so what really kicked off me wanting to do this, uh, you know, talk about this on this episode, is I got a, an email question from one of our listeners, Chris, in San Francisco. And he wrote to me, he said, I have been fascinated and a bit confused by the recent activity at Yale University, which is one of our leading universities here in the States. He said, there's a lot going on there regarding race, discrimination, free speech, developmental stages, safety, vilification of those who disagree, entitlement technology, et cetera. And I would love to hear your thoughts. I love the Daily Evolver's real-world application of the integral model, and it is tremendously helpful in allowing me to identify my own blind spots. And that is indeed what integral theory helps us do. It just sort of indexes reality so that we make sure that we look in places that we might not normally look in our conditioned mind. So anyway, just to explain this Yale University story... It started with a controversy over Halloween on campus as to whether students needed to be more sensitive to the potential cultural and racial offense that their Halloween costumes might evoke. And one of the doormasters, Erica Christanis, wrote an email defending Halloweeners. And she wrote, is there no room anymore for a child or young person To be a little bit obnoxious, a little bit inappropriate or provocative, or, yes, offensive? American universities were once a safe space not only for maturation, but also for a certain regressive or even transgressive experience. Increasingly, however, it seems universities have become places of censure and prohibition. Now, this letter or email that she sent out to the students, set off a ruckus that was countered by a letter in opposition to Christanis that also got a lot of attention. It was published in the Yale University newspaper. And this is The Other Side, written by a young black student. And she wrote, to argue that Halloween costumes are free speech fails to acknowledge the hurt and pain that a large part of the community feels. They, and she's referring to Erica and Nicholas Christakis. That's the couple that we're talking about. They, Erica and Nicholas, have shown again and again that they are committed to an ideal of free speech, not to the university community. And notice how she sets those up as a polarity: free speech versus community. There's, not, there's some truth to that. So. She goes on, she writes, Today, when a group of us, organized by the Black Student Alliance at Yale, spoke with Nicholas Christakis in the Silliman Courtyard, his response, once again, disappointed many of us. When students tried to tell him about their painful personal experiences as students of color on campus, he responded by making more arguments for free speech. He seems to lack the ability, quite frankly, to put aside his opinions long enough to listen to the very real hurt that the community feels. He doesn't get it. And I don't want to debate. I want to talk about my pain. And I'll repeat those last two lines because they became a point of outrage for the other side. The two lines are, I don't want to debate. I want to talk about my pain. And of course, you know, there was a lot of blowback. What a bunch of babies. Debate is a fundamental process in the education. Whatever happened to dissenting opinions and open dialogue, these are the hallmarks of higher education. Free speech means the freedom to offend. and This is that counter argument. And so you can see this set up here. And, you know, the media went crazy with it. As it does, because we're interested. You know, people want to read about this stuff. And Bill Maher and Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock all talked about how they don't like to go to college campuses anymore with their comedy acts because the students are too sensitive and can't take a joke. And the the most extreme example, <laughs> the one that my favorite one, is uh, from an article that you sent me actually, Brett, from the Atlantic magazine. It was called "The Coddling of the American Mind." And I'll just read a. Little paragraph about what they wrote. They said In April, at Brandeis University, the Asian American Student Association sought to raise awareness of microaggressions against Asians through an installation on the steps of an academic hall. The installation gave examples of microaggressions such as, Aren't you supposed to be good at math? or, I'm colorblind, I don't see race but a backlash arose among other Asian American students who felt that the display itself was a microaggression. So, the association removed the installation, and its president wrote an email to the entire student body apologizing to anyone who was, quote, triggered or hurt by the contents of the microaggressions. So, it sort of becomes an endless hall of mirrors in a certain way. Anyway, Let's see if we can use integral theory to help us navigate some of this. And uh, for those of you who are, you know, experts at integral, I would recommend that you pull up our chart on the altitudes or the levels of development. And Brett, do you have a link there in the... In the chat window. In the chat window, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it'll really help because what we're talking about are these predictable stages of human development that... Humanity goes through as a whole, and each of us as individuals go through, as far as we go, at least. So, when we look at the various stages of human development through human history, we can see that every stage has a speech code. What we're witnessing now at Yale and elsewhere is an increased level of green postmodern political correctness, which is the natural outcome of the continued growth of green postmodern consciousness in the culture. They have things that you can or can't say, and they have sensibilities that you have to be very careful not to offend. So there's political correctness at every stage. Just to go back a couple stages, at amber or traditionalism, this is the stage of you know fundamental uh, fundamentalist religion nationalism tribalism to some degree at this stage they call prohibited speech blasphemy and that is any speech that's seen as going against god or the religion and it's prohibited and if these cultures are skewing earlier or skewing a little bit red or the warrior culture where we have that sort of unholy mix of red and amber that creates holy, holy warriors. Blasphemy is not just decried; it's a capital crime, and we see that today with ISIS and you know these uh, Muslim holy warriors who are happy to cut off your head if you speak out against the prophet, or if you commit apostasy. You literally can't leave Islam alive. And, of course, this was true in Christianity five and 700 years ago. But, you know, that's the nature of political correctness at Red and Amber. What's well, also true, there's pockets of it in our more modern and postmodern culture. You wouldn't go to a VFW hall, that's the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and rip up an American flag. You would be asking for trouble if you did something like that. Um, and I, I, I have to say those of you who surf the internet like I do may have run into this weird anachronistic throwback of a story out of Thailand, where they arrested this poor Bangkok factory worker and charged him over a sarcastic post on Facebook concerning, I wish I could pronounce it, Thong Dang, the king of Thailand's dog. And, (laughs) I mean, it's funny if it wasn't, you know, so sad for this poor, you know, Bangkok worker, but he's been charged with a sedition and insulting the king and could be imprisoned for 37 years. And that's political correctness at that stage of development. So, okay, so then we move to orange, modernity. And at this stage of the game, culture becomes secular, and it's... Completely out of the blue, but the whole thing flips on its head. The political correctness in orange is that all of a sudden, the prohibited speech is anything that looks like religion or prayer. And if you wonder if I'm overstating that, I would just ask you just as in a little experiment— the next time you and your colleagues at work go out for lunch, when the food is served, invite everyone to hold hands while you say grace and just see how that goes over. You know, that's all kind of weird and embarrassing to us now. That's, that, that's the thing that, you know, it, it, it's not just bad manners. It's literally illegal in schools or public spaces to have any kind of government-sanctioned religious worship. And this, of course, is to the eternal consternation of those in our culture who are still at the traditional amber pre-modern stages. Uh, it's really astonishing. Uh, Ken Wilber, when we were talking about this um, oh, six months or so ago, he he pointed out that we went in one stage of development, from amber to orange, from a world where God is everywhere, to a world was where God is nowhere. And that is uh, astonishing. And we have at Green, when we move into the Green postmodern stage, another completely unimaginable evolutionary move that takes place. We see that out of a couple hundred thousand year history of tribal, racial and sectarian warfare ending in the conflagration of the first half of the 20th century with two world wars hundreds of millions dead concentration camps nuclear holocaust we as humans enter in to a most unexpected new phase and that is after all of this we become nice we become nice it's amazing that is the, one of the key markers of green, although green's not always nice, but we'll get to that. They're always nice. If they're not nice, they're not nice in the service of being nice, so we'll figure that out. But one of the, you know, there's, there's a few markers of, of, of green, and one is that, the main one is we become sensitized. We become sensitized to feelings in ourself and in other people. And from an integral perspective, using the quadrant chart, which I don't know if you could put that up there too, Brett, but we become interested in our interiors, in the world that exists within us, in a way that people in earlier stages actually literally didn't have access to. And I, for one, think that it's often misunderstood as narcissism. And I think there's an integral critique that, you know, we we call it boomeritis because it first started happening with the boomers, that, you know, this idea of being sensitized to our own feelings is really an act of narcissism. And I don't think so. I think it's just that we become aware of our interiors and we get very interested in them. I think it's evolutionary right on schedule and very potent. But it's different for sure. And to the degree that we are more and more green in, you know, all lines of development is the degree that we become ever more sensitized. Now, you know, there's a full Monty green and there's an adequate green. We'll get to that in a second too. But I want to point out one of the other main markers of green that really play into this. uh, And that, that is that we become oriented at green to people who have been left behind by all of the previous stages, by all of the victims of the previous stages. We talk about how red, the warrior stage, divides the world between predator and prey. Well, at green, green wants to rehabilitate the prey, to bring them into the system. We're talking about the oppressed, race, women, gays, even now animals, and other life forms. And that's the Green Project regarding the red victim. And then Amber divides the world between saints and sinners. Green, on the other hand, celebrates those who are transgressors. Green brought on the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, for instance. I think of David Bowie, who we just lost this week, who was such a great transgressor. Uh, an exemplar of how green really challenges these hard categories of good and bad and right and wrong, and even masculine and feminine that are so strong in amber. And then in orange, orange divides the world between the winners and the losers. So green wants to take on the losers the poor people who are left out of this, you know, globalized monetary system its so focused on money. And so we have Green bringing in safety nets and socialized health care and basically the Bernie Sanders agenda, which is caught fire on the left in this country. And it's again, a topic for another night, but uh, wow, Uh, go Bernie. So Green... Green wants to see everyone as equal with no discrimination. It looks at human history and it sees from the Nazis to the, everybody who thought that their culture was the best and had to be imposed on other cultures. That was the source of all of the misery of humanity in and, and history. And, and, and there's truth to that. But, you know, again, we're coming out of a world where not everybody's green. And, and for people who are at Amper... Non-discrimination? are you kidding me? You're supposed to discriminate at amber. Uh, it also at warrior red and tribal magenta. You want to know who's in and who's out. The whole project is to cleanse oneself and one's community of impurity, of the infidels. You want them, you know, we want to make these distinctions. who's right and who's wrong, who's going to heaven and who isn't? And, you know, there's still a lot of people doing that in the world. And there are a lot of cultures doing that in the world. They're in the news. And, you know, that's the Project of Amber. And in orange, discrimination is, well, it's outlawed. So that means that de jure, there is equality under the law. So there's no discrimination in the exteriors, the exterior quadrants. So race, creed, color, all of that, everybody's equal. And all laws support that. And it's illegal to discriminate. And, you know, those are more or less imperfectly written and implemented. But that's the sort of center of gravity of morality at Orange, so, you know, it doesn't all happen in lockstep, you know, it's not like people or cultures go from amber to orange. There's mixes and levels and lines that uh uh are are just part of the evolutionary mess, if you will. But uh well, here's an example. There's a a, a, a um email that was written to uh a, a gay organization. This is in 2012 during the height of the um, gay marriage debates, and uh, I kept it, and I, I, I thought it was really interesting because this is written by a really clearly a, an intelligent person, who whose intelligence and sort of uh, political understanding is 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 at orange, but their sort of moral and 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 heart understanding is still at amber. And and I'll read it. He said, "Once again, aberrant groups." like you homosexuals, are complaining that you don't have a golden cup and seat at the table. Listen, in America, you are allowed to exist without persecution. See, that's, that's you know, legal in the exteriors. You're allowed to exist without persecution. He goes on, he says, any other right that you request is just another step towards the hedonistic values that contributed to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The closer America gets as a society to honoring your seat at the table is yet another step towards the decline of Western civilization. And deep down, you know it. You are deviants. And I must say, that kind of cut close to the vest with me. Uh, But I appreciate you know, the sharpness of that blade. You know, you're in. We're not going to persecute you. But honoring your seat at the table, forget it. And so that's the move uh, as orange continues to consolidate until we finally get to green. And the project of green in terms of this discrimination piece is to eradicate discrimination in the interiors, in people's attitudes and feelings, in the endless cascade of social interactions that we have all day long, in hiring and firing and how we greet each other and how we live in neighborhoods and our children and all of it, culture, music, art, who's allowed to play who in the movies. Green wants you to notice the ways you may perfectly legally, and even unconsciously, choose John's resume over Juan's or Jamal's. How you might be subtly turned off, or not so subtly turned off by the idea of gay sex. How accepted symbols in our society, which are just background noise to most of us, such as the Confederate flag or the Redskin football team, how those bring upset to a substantial number of our fellow citizens. And green wants you to really feel that, you know, it's, it's green basically wants you to do therapy over it, whether you want to or not. Uh, And, you know, that's just what we're dealing with. That's what's green supposed to do. That's green's job. And, you know, some people go all the way and some people don't. But th- it's just a foundational principle in couples counseling or restorative justice. You know, these are both, the whole therapeutic culture, restorative justice, these are functions of green consciousness. And, and let's say there's one person being victimized by another, it's it's a cheating spouse or It's a community that was oppressed by another politically. Marshall Rosenberg and the folks at Nonviolent Communication do these amazing processes, these multi-day seminars or encounters in the Balkans and between the Palestinians and Israelis in South Africa. And the purpose is for real perpetrators, people who have hurt and killed their neighbors, to see the pain and suffering they cause by listening to the testimony of their victims— or the surviving victims. People who carry wounds, a cheated-on spouse, these wounds, we really want to be seen for carrying these wounds. We don't want to have them minimized or explained or interpreted even in any way. And that is the sort of energy that needs to go into healing these kinds of, you know, This is evolutionary, this is evolution at work, as we see deeper and deeper into each other. And green has that understanding, that true intimacy and community comes from witnessing, at least witnessing, and as best we can, feeling each other's pain. So, in this spirit, (laughs) God, I'm going to share a little piece of performance art that I wrote about 15 years ago. And this was, uh, uh, this is a bit of a script that I wrote for a colloquium that I had with my uh, fellow and sister students in the Masters of Divinity program that I was in at Naropa University about 15 years ago or so. And the purpose of the project was to surface the marginalized voices in society. This is very much a green project. And we wanted to find these voices in ourselves and then find how they also, you know, how we sort of exemplified and and could express these voices in the culture. So, okay, I'm gay, but I've always, you know, seen myself as reasonably well-adjusted have always accepted the limits that that put on me, you know, growing up in the 70s in the Steel Valley. It wasn't easy, but I didn't suffer too much. I accommodated it. I was always grateful that I'd been able to build a life where I was able to live openly, at least as an adult. But the invitation of this class was to find that marginalized, victimized voice that each of us carry, that touches the pain of the larger group, and indeed humanity itself. So I found that, you know, once I gave myself permission to do that, I found that inside of me there was a subpersonality that was deeply hurt about his lot in life and who was sitting on a cauldron of anger about how he had been stunted in a homophobic society. And so I created this bit of performance theater that expressed that. There's really two parts to it. One is, uh, the first part is a trigger warning. So I'm going to issue a trigger warning here tonight. And I I didn't know what I was doing. It's just, you know, I I told the group, this is what I'm going to do. It might be unpleasant. So if you want to leave, please do. And, you know, I don't want to hurt you, that kind of thing. And, you know, it just sort of came naturally. So I'm going to start with that. And then I'll go into chapter two, and I'll just announce it as chapter two. I'm not going to do chapter one. I'm not going to do three, four, or five. I did five chapters, but this this is just this one that expresses sort of the flavor of anger. Brett, why don't you just uh, create the new space with a little gong sound, and we'll take it from there. So here I am, Jeff, in front of the class 15 years ago, and I begin. In this presentation, I expect to channel some wrath and anger. And while it will come at you, I ask you to receive it in your role as the collective and not to take it personally. Regardless, some of this may feel intense and confrontational, If you just don't want to go into that kind of space in this moment for whatever reason, then please, I ask you to just bow out of this performance. No hard feelings. You can meditate in the hallway, take a walk, and you're welcome to come back for the discussion. Or you can also listen to the tape if you'd like. I ask you to consider this carefully because I want to be able to fully manifest these voices and not worry about hurting anyone. I don't want to hold back. So with that said, I'll assume that you're here and will experiment with me. And so here I am, surfacing the voice of the marginalized and persecuted gay man. Chapter 2. The other night, I was talking to a young friend of mine in his mid-twenties, who had just returned from a couple of years studying in Barcelona. He was telling me about his time there, but the story wasn't about his studies. It was about his mad love affair with a young Spanish man, and the passion, and the drama. The story he told me puts any soap opera to shame, intrigue, betrayal, crazy misunderstandings and elaborate recriminations. He told me of a scene on a subway platform where he and his lover stood screaming at each other, tears flowing down their faces in the middle of a crowd that had gathered around them. He told me of one of them breaking away through the crowd, running off, the other chasing him, calling his name into the rainy night. How beautiful that story was to me. How incredibly heartening. I'm so proud of these young warriors, these fearless warriors out there chopping off the head of ignorance. The big, stupid, logy head of ignorance who just can't be bothered to see us. Do you see us? Do you see me? Did you know that we homosexuals have soap operas too? What did you think? That we're confused? That we're kidding ourselves? You think we're just doing this to annoy you? To make you uncomfortable? To make a political statement? You think we're just playing house? We're not. We gay people are following the callings of our heart and the obsessions of our minds and the juice of our gentles, just like you. Of course, how could you know that? Aside from being on the right Barcelona subway platform at the right time, where would you ever see it? Maybe the ever so occasional lesbian couple will walk hand in hand through the downtown Boulder Mall. And I honor deeply My fierce warrior sisters who can do that. But have you ever seen two men do that? Walk in public hand in hand? Smooch over a table in a restaurant? Call each other honey in a grocery store? No, you haven't. Have you ever wondered why? I'll tell you why. The reason you don't see unneutered gay men in public is real simple. We'd be badly hurt. Sure, the children's eyes would be averted, and we'd get obscene catcalls, which would be bad enough. But I also guarantee you, it wouldn't be long before we were hurt physically. It might take a day or a couple days, but it would happen, even here in the People's Republic of Boulder. Boulder because those are the norms of society. And there are many, many people who would consider it their sacred duty to enforce them. Have you ever given this five minutes thought? But again, why would you? The fog of ignorance is so very thick. That's why out of the hundreds of characters that appear on primetime TV, only seven are gay and they're either sexless or caricatures. That's why out of the thousands of romantic movies that have been made, approximately 100% of them are about straight people. And I ask you to see that. I ask you to see and feel my anger. The anger that I feel when I go to the movies, and I sit there, and it happens again, and I think, if I have to sit through one more goddamn heterosexual love scene, I'm going to stand on my seat in the middle of this theater and start shouting and protest. How about my love? Look at me. My love is real. My love is here. My love is holy. Me and my gay sisters and brothers love and hate and hurt and break just like you do, just like Meg fucking Ryan does, and Ben fucking Affleck. (laughs) Okay, everybody, it's just me. I'm back. (laughs) So yeah, so that was real. That was authentic. That was in me you know i had my sort of story that you know i was good and you know i got away with it and you know i'm uh, i'm happy and all of that's all true but that was true too and so for me to express it is a real challenge not only to me but to the person i'm expressing it to i mean how can you possibly respond to that what's what's your response to what i just read You know, how does, how do any of us respond when someone comes at us with with that kind of pain and anger? And we're complicit. And, you know, we can sort of defend ourselves and say that we don't really deserve it and that, you know, I haven't done or thought any of those things. Um, I could argue that I didn't have it so easy either that nobody gave me anything. Or I could point out that... You know, things are better than ever. Look at the progress gays have made. And it's, it is interesting to see the progress because I wouldn't write this now. That was 15 years ago. But culture has changed. I mean, gay marriage, I mean, the media culture, it's astonishing. Uh, so, but, you know, explaining that in the face of this kind of anger doesn't really move the ball very much. And so, in that piece, I was like the young black student at Yale. I don't want to debate this. I want you to feel my pain. And that's legitimate. That's one of the projects of green. And so, you know, the, the, the one thing we can do is to bear witness. And, you know, this is a wonderful Buddhist teaching, uh, probably a generalized spiritual teaching, that in the face of suffering, the best thing we can do if we can't alleviate it uh, directly, is to bear witness to it and to just see that person and drink them up and their pain and their historical karma. You know, we don't just come in here on our own. We we trail the karma of our ancestors. And, uh, and that's one of the projects, it's one of the practices of green that... Are, is such a gift, such an accomplishment, and something that we want to preserve. It's the green that we want to take forward into integral and post-integral um, stages. So, you know, yes, does green go too far? Yes, I mean that you know that there's all of these you know microaggressions and you know the speech codes and um, one of one of my readers wrote to me, and I thought he really summed it up well, and he says, because um, I had asked him, we, we had exchanged a couple of emails, and he said he was from, from Western Pennsylvania, which I, I, was, I am too, and so I asked him where he was from in Western Pennsylvania, and so he wrote back as if he was offended by that question, and he, he wrote, he said, whoever states that they are offended has the right to be deferred to regarding all future interactions, so, if I say to you that I do not like that you ask where I was from in, quote, Western Pennsylvania, as opposed to Southwestern Pennsylvania, you are not allowed to inquire as to why I am offended. You are not permitted to make any arguments regarding the correctness of Western Pennsylvania. You are only permitted to use Southwestern Pennsylvania in all future discussions, otherwise you are operating from a power-over position. And are creating an un- unsafe space. <laughs> you know, the victim does become the new oppressor. You know, if Green gets to sort of run with it. But I don't worry too much about it. I mean, please, th- th- these are you know people in universities uh, who are, or, you know, really at the cutting edge of culture, that are, um, you know, their job is to be sensitized. Uh, and, you know, maybe even ultra-sensitized. And as to whether or not they overdo it, I would, you know, respond by saying, do the Amish overdo it? (laughs) You know, do people who run marathons overdo it? How about monastics who spend hours a day in prayer and meditation? Do they overdo it? Uh, Is there some aspect of your life where you overdo it? And, you know, In the defense of these green warriors who are out, you know, to uncover every microaggression, you know, they're doing what human beings are wired to do, which is overdo it. We're wired to go as far as we can in absolutely every direction. It's an amazing aspect of evolution. So, you know, we want to know where our capacities are or how far our passions can take us. And if we're lucky we get hooked by something that takes us somewhere that very few people ever get to inhabit. And our inhabiting this territory actually clears the brush. It creates a bigger world space for all of us and contributes to the education of humanity and the expansion of the collective consciousness of humanity. And, you know, these college campuses is sort of this intensified container where a lot of really smart, overeducated, exquisitely sensitized people get to work out the capacities of green. And I don't think we're in any danger of um, them overwhelming us. In fact, the backlash even feels welcome to me. You know, I really do feel like uh, it's time to loosen things up a bit. Uh, But, you know, this is all happening in real time. I'm just asking us to notice it. All right. So let's, you know, always continue to push ourselves out of our comfort zones and into the world of other people and look through the, their eyes and walk in their moccasins. You know, these are very, very powerful integral practices. And the fruit of these practices is that we develop a higher, more integral capability, which means that we get to do it all. When grandma invites us to say grace at a holiday dinner table, we can do it with authenticity. We can hang out with the rednecks and not have to spend too much time being offended by their racial and cultural insensitivity. Because, you know, gadzooks. We realize that people at the ethnocentric stage of development are ethnocentric. And when, we're, and when we're with the orange materialists, we can be logical and secular and keep the woo-woo to a minimum. And with green political correctness, when we're dealing with the green warriors for social justice, we can, well, one thing we can do is we can check our privilege. <laughs> I was asked to do it often in my days at Naropa. And it's not altogether a bad thing. We can sharpen our sensitivity to their feelings and be kinder and more sympathetic. And we can bear witness to their pain in doing that. And that goes some distance towards healing it and healing the larger karmic pain of human history. It's really true. And by realizing this and doing these things as a practice, we are gaining our footing in the integral stage. And the integral stage, one of the big markers of integral consciousness, is that it is multi-perspectival, which means that it can take the perspectives of the previous mono-perspectival stages. We are the universal donors. One last thought, which is, I just just love this line. It's from Claire Graves, who's one of the original researchers that uh, did work in developmental um, theory and, and, and identified the integral stage of development, and he wrote this wonderful pithy line. He said that green makes us worthy of becoming integral, you know, that we finally get sensitized so that we can recognize the experience and pain and hurt of people that we may want to minimize, and that, uh, again, is a practice All right. Well, uh, I think that closes us off for the night. Brett, we're going to end with a song by David Bowie, who we lost this week and who was really a great artist in terms of particularly gender fluidity and just fluidity of identity in general, which feels like a real integral contribution as an artist. He was really big in my life. Uh, Ziggy Stardust came out when I was a freshman in college, the year I came out, Uh, and um, David Bowie was a great, great friend to me and inspiration. So Mm. this is uh, from his latest album that was released three days before he died, actually, and this is the key song called Lazarus. Is that right, Brett? That's right. just like me By the time I got to New York I was living like a king Then I used up